All right, if you have your Bible with you or access to the Bible on your phone, if you want to pull out and go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is located toward the end of the New Testament. You get past Paul's letters, and then you get past the book of Hebrews and the book of James. You get to the letters from Peter, and we're going to be looking for a couple of weeks at, at 1 Peter. Tonight at 6 o'clock, is the encore, encore, I don't know how you say that word, E-N-C-O-R-E, whatever that is, the second performance uh, of Rescued. I just can't emphasize enough how much you're going to want to be here. It's worth coming just to see the closing song, the closing dance at the end. I, I cannot overstate how incredible it is. Uh, we had a great turnout last night, a great performance, incredible time of worship through music and dance and art and drama. And so that production that's happening tonight is based on the book of Daniel. It tells the story of Daniel. And the way that the Bible works, Daniel is one of the books in the Old Testament that's very well known for a lot of its stories. The New Testament equivalent to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament is either Revelation, which we've looked at, which has a lot of tie-ins with the book of Daniel, but even more than that, the book of 1 Peter. So when you read the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, to really understand what's happening there with those stories in the book of Daniel, you have to balance it with the book of 1 Peter from the New Testament. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna be looking at part of the story in, in 1 Peter. Even better than that, is starting next week on Sunday nights, we begin our fall semester of Sunday night Bible studies. We have couple studies, we have a great men's study that's starting, guys, about what it means to be a man of God, how do you do that in the world today, a great study that starts next week at five o'clock. The women's Bible study, though, this semester is going to be over First Peter. So ladies, you have a perfect transition to go from watching Rescued about the book of Daniel Sunday mornings, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter for a couple of weeks, and then that women's Bible study, the way it's worked out, is it is going to be 1 Peter going through, the, through this semester. So we have a great opportunity tonight and then leading into those Sunday night stu studies next week. So that's what we're trying to do is think about what does it mean to understand the Daniel story, God's rescue of us, how do we understand that in light of 1 Peter. We're gonna read these verses starting in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 17. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. After I read these verses, as I pray for us, we're going to pray specifically as well for Dan and Amber Sueza. I know you don't know that name or that couple, but a couple, I guess an hour from now, they are going to be having the first worship service of a new church in Calgary, Canada, that they are planting. We've got a couple of connections with Calgary that are starting to develop, but there's a church that's starting this Sunday in a movie theater just north of Calgary International Airport, and Dan and Amber Sueza are a young couple in their mid-20s who God has called to Canada, and they are there, and this is the first worship service for their church, and based on time zones, about an hour from now, they're gonna have their first worship service, and so I want us as Emmaus, as Emmaus to be able to pray for this couple and for their church, Connect Church, that's launching this morning in Calgary, Canada. All right, let's read these verses from 1 Peter. Verse 17, chapter one. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, 
Then conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And then we're gonna stop there for this morning. Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word. We know that it's nothing that happens of man that transforms a person's life, a person's heart. We trust in the power of your word given to us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be the thing this morning that connects with our hearts and our minds. God, help us to reflect carefully this morning on what it means to live for you, to be rescued from worthless things in order to worship the one, the only one who is truly worthy of our worship. Father, we pray for Dan and Amber Sueza. We pray for Connect Church all the emotions that are going into their first worship service happening this morning in Calgary. God, thank you for the love that they have for young adults and young families in Calgary. God, I pray this morning that they would see the power of the gospel go into that place where so many people coming this morning to that church have never heard about Daniel, have never heard about First Peter, have never heard the story from the gospels. And God, that they would be able to build relationships that they'd be able to build a church that is based on the good news of Jesus Christ. And God, thank you that we here at Emmaus can stand alongside them and pray for them this morning. Father, speak to us through your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're gonna get started in a fun way this morning. I've got a few people coming on stage to help me. Volunteers, don't act shy, come quickly, because we're eating into my sermon time. So come on. All right. We're gonna get started this morning. As we think about this morning, what does it mean? On the back of your bulletin, you've got some sermon notes you can follow along with. The topic this morning, Bob, you better go join the boys. They need your help over here. <laughs> go help them, don't leave them alone. The topic this morning is what does it mean that God has rescued us from the worthless things in order that we might worship the one who is truly worthy? So we're gonna play a little game this morning of what's it worth? Little game show called What's It Worth? Beautiful ladies over here and some guys over here. So uh, two teams. You're gonna see pictures on the screen. If you wanna turn around, there's gonna be pictures on the screen. This is a Rolex Daytona 18 karat white gold watch. What's it worth? You have five seconds. Hurry ladies, decide. Guys, decide. What's that watch worth? Okay, so we've got 25,000 over here and 120,000 over here. So uh, you gotta like that. Actually, that watch comes in a little bit closer to, retail's around 35,000. You can get it for 20, I think, if you go to the right place. So it depends on what model you get. We'll give that one to the girls. All right, good job. Second picture, here we go. A 2017 Corvette. What's it worth? 17,000. 2007, parents of these boys, pay attention, all right? This is a good moment for you. 
Okay, we've got 50,000 over here and 95,000 over here. Well, obviously it matters which model you get, but the, this picture particularly up here is 59,000. So uh, once again, we're gonna go to the girls. So you can get it for a lot more if you get it loaded. So uh, you can spend kind of what you want on that. You guys got your first car picked out. There you go, so you're good. You want the one with all the features yeah. souped up. So, all right, next one, here we go. Michael Jordan rookie card, mint condition. 1986, 1987, Fleer, Michael Jordan rookie card. This is tricky, because this can go a couple of different ways, but. Uh, okay, funny enough, they actually gave two answers that are both correct. The lady said 100,000. This card actually did sell for $100,000 uh, at auction recently, but. These guys said 3,000. If you don't get the 10 grade card, 3,000 is about the going rate for an eight and a half, nine grade card. For those of you that put your Michael Jordan rookie cards on your bike spokes, sorry, I can't, I can't help you with that. So that's your own fault uh, at this point. Or your parents have them stored in an attic somewhere and you don't know where your, your basketball cards are. So yeah, it depends on the grade and they're actually both correct about that. Okay, one more, here we go. A gallon of Brahms milk. Okay. 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 So we have 250 over here and 550 over here. The guys don't do a lot of shopping, so uh, they, they live in an inflationary world. I, th I think Brahms milk at a gallon is about $2.97 right now, $3, something like that. So, uh, all right, let's give everybody a round of applause. Uh, good job. Now, if there's one glass of Brahms milk left in the fridge, and there's a plate of cookies or brownies on the table, what happens to the worth of that glass of milk? It goes way up. Because now all of a sudden, it's just not a $2.97 gallon of milk from Brahms. It's worth something because there's not much of it and, and it's everything. This is kind of the parent thing that where those discount bins and Target that you get right there at the beginning, it says $1 and $3. But when your kid is breaking down and it's the only hope of making it out of the store, $1 and $3 all of a sudden becomes everything to you. It's worth a whole bunch at that point just to be able to escape the store. You'll pay anything. We live in a world where the worth of something is a huge issue. You watch Antiques Roadshow, people come in, they wanna know what something is worth, does this matter? You always feel bad for the people that come in thinking their object is worth a whole bunch and then they find out it's actually worth almost nothing. If we place our hope and our faith and we give our life to something that actually proves to be worthless, you understand the weight of that, right? That we've given ourselves to something that really doesn't amount to anything. And the constant call of Scripture, the constant call of the New Testament is to weigh the worth of what you're giving your life to. Is it worth it? Am I giving my life to the one who is truly worthy? 
First Peter addresses that. First Peter chapter one, verse 17. In this verse, in verse 17, there's really one main command. English language grammar, there's one main imperative here that, that controls everything. It comes right in the middle of the verse. It's where it says in New American Standard to conduct yourselves in fear or, or to live in fear. It's a little bit strange that you would find a phrase there, live in fear, because when we think about the concept of fear in relation to the Bible, usually the pendulum goes to one of two extremes. Either this idea of fear is cowering before God, complete despair, complete anxiety, no acknowledgement of his goodness, or the pendulum goes to the other extreme and it's just a complete casual nature toward God. The big man upstairs, doesn't really matter, just very casual. This idea of fear though is not fear of the world, it's not fear of something happening, it's not fear of a God that we can never know how he acts or who he is. It's just an honest, healthy, reverent worship. And it's a concept we realize is so important because when you live in a world where everything is satire, when you live in a world where everything is a game, when you live in a world where everything is taken half-heartedly, it's difficult to know what it is to really acknowledge the worth of something. And to say, yes, I am called by God's word to live in fear of him, not cowering before him, but also not treating him as the big man upstairs, casually. We understand what it is to conduct ourselves in fear. In a couple of weeks, in, the month, uh, in, in October, we're going to start a new study in the book of Proverbs and, and, and study through Proverbs for several uh, months on Sunday morning. In the book of Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is what? Fear of the Lord. The way you know how to live your life, the way you know how to conduct yourselves in this world is having a proper fear of the Lord, knowing who he is. The fear of the Lord, though, is based on two things. So there's one command, fear the Lord, live in fear, but it's given with two supports. The first support is that God's character is father and judge. Look at the beginning of verse 17. It says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. What you see here is this combination that we always have to keep in mind, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We understand what it is for God to be a good father, for God to be a good and loving and caring father who at the same time and with the same goodness and the same wisdom and the same justice also is judge. So we see him as father but we don't see him as a father who just looks the other way and says, do whatever you want to. We see him as a father who also judges. And it says specifically that he judges impartially. That word impartially, depending on which translation you're reading out of, it means he doesn't judge according to the face. He doesn't judge according to the appearance of things. So he's not taking something at face value and saying, I'm just judging based on what I see. He's judging based on the core reality of something. We live in a world where the greatest sin is to judge someone. Probably that's the most famous verse in the Bible right now in the world in which we live, judge not lest you be judged. People who have nothing to do with Christianity still know that particular Bible verse that you're not supposed to judge and they're always happy to remind you of it, that they know that Bible verse. Like Judging is the worst thing ever. But when you go throughout the New Testament and you see God's character and you see his call in our lives, it's not the act of judging 
that's being condemned, it's judging according to just the face, just the appearance of things. It's judging without a core knowledge. It's judging based on appearance, not on works. Because it says after this, he judges impartially according to each one's work. A little bit of explanation here so the theology train doesn't go off the tracks, but when it says here he judges according to each one's work, it's not saying you need to do a lot of good works because then God will accept you, then you can address him as father. It's saying he judges according to our work, according to our lifestyle that inevitably reflects our relationship with God. So if we see him as father, if we see him as judge, then we will live such a life. Our work will reflect that we're rightly related to him. And so he rightly, as God, as father and judge, judges each of us according to our work. Not trying to do individual things to make God like us, but just saying the life that we live will reflect the relationship that we have with God, and he judges in that way. And we know from scripture that we're held accountable for the words that we speak, for the attitudes that we have, for the actions that we perform that God rightly judges, but he judges as Father. So it's based on God's character, but it's also based on his actions. Look in verse 18. Verse 18 says, you're supposed to conduct yourselves in fear, into verse 17, during the time of your stay on earth. Verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. That word redeemed there in verse 18, it's a word that you may have a little note next to it if you have a study Bible. It's a word that can also be ransomed and it's a word that can also be rescued. You see people walking around this morning with rescued t-shirts on. This word redeemed is the word redeemed sometimes translated ransom, sometimes translated rescued. It means that a payment had to be made in order for a slave, for someone who had another master to be made right, to be rescued, to be redeemed, to be ransomed out of that other slavery. When you read scripture, you find that we are slaves to sin, that we have made sin our master. Instead of making God our master, when we rebel against him and we live in brokenness like the circle over here shows, when we move away from God's design for our lives, we live in brokenness and so we live in slavery to sin. In the history of the church, there's different theories about what Jesus' death accomplished on the cross. If you enjoy reading theology, or, and this is something that we all need to be aware of, there's a word out there, and the word is atonement. And I'll spell it for you since it's not in your notes, but atonement is A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T. Atonement is how we try to understand why Jesus died on the cross. Why did it matter? Why did he even have to do that? Why is that part of the Bible in there? Atonement is trying to help us understand why that happened. There are all kinds of atonement theories out there about what Jesus' death was about, what Jesus' death accomplished. One of the earliest atonement theories in church history was what was called the ransom theory, which is that Jesus died for the purpose of purchasing us back. And the early church thought of us needing to be purchased back from Satan. So we were in slavery to Satan, 
Jesus died as a payment that God put forth so that we could be paid for, so that we could be rescued out of slavery. What you find, though, in 1 Peter is not that we're rescued necessarily from Satan, but it says in 1 Peter verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18, that you were rescued with, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but you were rescued from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. So this idea that we weren't necessarily enslaved to Satan, though that is seen to be true in other places, but we were enslaved to a way of life that was never going to lead us to the way of life that God had for us. Acts chapter 14, verse 15, gives us another picture of this. Acts 14, 15, Paul and Barnabas, we Paul and Barnabas speaking here, Paul says, we are also men of the same nature as you, and we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain this is the same word that you find in 1 Peter, from these vain, futile things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and there's all that is in them. Futile, vain, means that it would never lead to life. And the call of the gospel is that we would turn away from those things, that we would be rescued from these worthless things. But how were we rescued? So we were rescued from the worthless things, but how did that happen? Verse 18 says, you were not ransomed, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. Silver or gold here are probably standing in for two concepts. It's probably standing for silver or gold made into the shape of an idol. But even more than that, we think of silver and gold as money. And remember that the word redeem that's used here is the word for ransom to pay an amount of money in order to get a slave back. And so it's saying that this payment that was made was not made with material money. It was not made with silver or gold. Instead, verse 19 says, it was made with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the lamb of God. So we have been redeemed from these futile ways of life inherited from our forefathers, these ways of life that would never lead to true life. I wanna show you a picture of this. It's up on the screen, you can see. When we leave God's design for our life, it's called sin. Sin leads to brokenness. And then there are all those squiggly lines out to the side. Those are all of our attempts to rescue ourselves from brokenness. But ultimately, what those attempts are, Bible calls futile or vain or worthless. You're trying to rescue yourself. You're trying to escape from the brokenness of life, but every attempt on our own leads further and further away from God. It's futile, it's vain, it's worthless. The only way that we can be led back to God is through Jesus Christ. Specifically, 1 Peter says, with the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. That's why that chorus that David taught us earlier, Jesus Worthy is the lamb that was slain. That's why that chorus is so important to our theology, to know that he is worthy because the payment that he made was with his precious and perfect blood, not with something human like money, not with something of this world. When you think about the payment of Christ, I want to give you two words, and I I don't remember if these made them on the notes, and I don't have a copy in front of me. Two words to understand the payment and the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. The first is precious, and the second is permanent. Precious and permanent. Precious 
is a word that also relates to the idea of money. If something is precious, it means that it's of great value, that not very much like it exists. When we think about the blood of Jesus given for us, it's precious because no one else, don't miss this part, no one else could have done for us what he did. It makes his blood precious because it was invaluable to do what we could never do for ourselves. But it wasn't just precious, it was also permanent. In verse 20, it says that Christ, the Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Here's what verses 20 and 21 teach us about Jesus. He was foreknown before the creation of the world. So ever, even before all of the created things came into being, he was. He existed and God's perfect plan was in place. And not even death, the one thing that could possibly destroy the created world, not even death could hold him. So not only was Jesus' sacrifice precious, but it was permanent. He was before all things, and he will endure beyond all things. And that is what makes him worthy. That is why he alone is able to save. He alone is able to rescue. If we turn to anything else in this world and say it's of greater worth than Jesus, that won't prove to be true because it's not precious and it's not permanent. Only the sacrifice of Jesus could do those things. In light of that, how should we live our lives? There's one huge caution that comes out of this passage, and it's on your notes there. The caution is that we would not count as ultimately worthy something that is actually worthless. Fear of God, that first Peter calls us to, how do I have an appropriate fear of God? I show with my life that God is ultimately worthy as father and judge, and I show with my life that the sacrifice of Jesus is precious and permanent to me, that I have trusted ultimately in him. Everything else is worthless. But I want to explain the word worthless because if you're tracking with me, you should argue with me at this point. So you're telling me, Owen, that my family is worthless, that my job is worthless, that my house is worthless, that all the things I enjoy in life are worthless. So should I just show up to church all the time? Is that what you're telling me? I should just come to church, sing songs, read my Bible nonstop. Everything else is just worthless? That's a good counter-argument. Here's my point. All of those things are worthless in the sense that they cannot give life. They're worthless in the sense that they can never rescue us. They can never save us. They can never make us right with God. But worthless does not equal meaningless. Worthless means not able to give life, not able to save, but it's not the same as meaningless because these things that God has given us in the created world are good gifts from him. Sometimes in Christianity, we'll say that the spiritual is good and the physical is bad, don't go down that road. That's actually a terrible heresy that will lead you off into all kinds of bad theological weeds. The story of Scripture is not that physical things are bad. The story of Scripture is that physical things are not God. That's the point. It's not that these are bad things. Family, job, hobbies, 
beautiful nature all around us, those are good gifts from a good God, but they're not God. They're never meant to stand in that place. The danger is that we would count those things as ultimately worthy and we would give ourselves to them to the point that we fear losing those things more than anything else. One of the ways that you determine what your God is is the thing that you fear losing more than anything else. If you say, I could never imagine losing my job, I wouldn't be able to go on, let's probably become your God. I couldn't imagine losing this relationship, I could never go on, let's probably become your God. I could never imagine losing this thing that I like to do, probably become your God. The thing that we fear losing often shows itself to be the thing that we count of greatest worth. There's a great article I read this last week by a man named Garrett Gilkey who played in the NFL and actually I think his career just stopped this, this past season. Uh, but he talks about how he came to see in the midst of suffering God's great worth. Gilkey was drafted by the Cleveland Browns a couple of years ago and then went on to play for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. If you want to know about suffering, be drafted by the Browns and play for the Buccaneers. <laughs> that sounds like the ultimate, the ultimate form of, of suffering. But uh, Garrett Gilkey wrote an incredible article, and I've got some of, his, uh, some of his quote up here on the screen for you to see. He says, in the NFL, it's, easily, it's easy to publicly thank God when we win, when we are victors, when we feel like gods. I want to take the opportunity to thank God when I am afraid. I want to take, thank him for three things. His promise to care for me in the midst of threatening pain, his meaning which he spins out of the thread of suffering, and his joy which resonates most beautifully when superficial pleasures fade. It's hard to imagine an NFL player speaking that. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, he goes on to say, God makes meaning out of our suffering because he is sufficient in it. Through suffering, I see in my own heart these desires given to the throne. That's God's biggest gift in suffering, to have something taken away from you and still find joy. A family member, a job, an idol. God satisfies us, not in spite of our unwanted circumstances, but in and through them. We live in appropriate fear of God when we count him as being of greater worth than anything else the world could ever give. Any NFL career, any job, any physical possession, any relationships, we say all of those things are ultimately worthless to ever give us life, to ever save us. Only you are worthy, and the reason you are worthy is because you are Father, you are judge, and you have rescued us. You have rescued us from the power of sin and death through the precious and permanent blood of Jesus Christ. That's Christianity in a nutshell. How do we live like that? How do we get to that point? Well, one of the ways we get to that point is we just continue to immerse ourselves in the gospel, worshiping with God's people, knowing his word, spending time in prayer. But on your notes, I've given you two suggestions. These are two things that have been most helpful to me in getting to a point that I can say, God, I want you to be worthy beyond anything else. Not that I've arrived, but these are two things that I go back to more than anything else. I want you to be able to take these home and I hope that they would, would be helpful to you in your, in your Christian life. The first is, we have to learn to say 
This is a good gift, but a terrible guide. In our house, my kids could have got on stage right now and they could have told you that phrase because they probably get tired of me using that phrase. We use that phrase in our house all the time because it is a mark of spiritual maturity when you can look at something in your life and you can say this is a good gift but a terrible God. Teach your kids, teach your grandkids, teach yourself to look at something and say, God, thank you so much for this. God, thank you for this job. Thank you for this house. Thank you for my family. Thank you for this hobby. Thank you for this fact that we have a chance to do this. This is a good gift from you, but it would be a terrible God. And if you can get to the point of saying that, you begin to see things in life completely different. Because that thing that's a good gift but a terrible God no longer has mastery over you. It doesn't control your schedule. It doesn't control your self-worth. It doesn't control your pocketbook. It's just a good gift from a good God. But it's not God. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Don't slip into this idea of spiritual good, physical bad. 1 Timothy 4, 4 says if it's created by God, it's good. And it's meant for our pleasure and his glory. Receive it as such, but don't let it become a God. Here's the second thing that's helpful. So the first is to learn to say this is a good gift, but a terrible God. The second thing is to move from God as a priority to Jesus Christ as Lord. To move from God as a priority to God as the prioritizer. Many times, many times, someone will say, what are the priorities in your life? And if we were to have a standing poll this morning and we were to say, what are the priorities in our life? Our priorities would probably look like this. God, family, job and friends might battle for three or four on the list. Hobbies would be five. You ask, youth group, up to adults, they're gonna give you something there. You'll notice school doesn't make the list because I was thinking of our youth as, we were, uh, as I was preparing the list. It doesn't make a list a priority, but this is a general priority list. What's the problem with a priority list? The problem with a priority list is that many of us know college sports, and we know college football and college basketball, and the problem with being ranked one place on a list is the next week you're ranked in another place on the list. And hopefully God is good and the current rankings will not bear themselves out <laughs> over the course of the football season. But the problem with rankings is that you can go from one to three pretty quickly. And many of us live under incredible guilt because you spend most of your time trying to make God number one in your life. Can I set you free from something? God has no desire to be number one in your life because God has no desire to be a priority in your life because then you're Lord of your life setting him in as a priority. God is not number one. He's not a priority. He is Lord. He is the one who sets the priorities. He's not a priority. This is what we should look like. We should have a big title over our life that says Jesus is Lord. That's it. He's the one, he's the one who's Lord, he's the one who sets the priorities in my life, and then the priorities fall in line under him. Because in this, he can't get dropped down in the priority list. 
Instead, he sets the priorities and he infuses everything we do for his glory, for his purposes. What I hope you see in this model here is incredible freedom. Because if you spend your whole life trying to make God number one in your life, you're going to find yourself playing an extremely tiring religious game that will wear you out and make you feel guilty and shameful. But if you declare above all things that he is worthy, that he is Lord, that he is the one who will set the direction for my life, then what you find is incredible freedom, incredible joy, and you spend your life living for him. As we come to the end of our time this morning, I put a couple of questions on the bottom of your notes there. First and foremost, this is foundational. Are my faith and hope completely in the precious and permanent sacrifice that God provided through Jesus Christ. Where is your hope in life? Where is your faith? Is it in Jesus Christ? That's the foundation for how we live our lives to the glory of God. Secondly, I'd ask you to think about this very closely. What is one good gift in my life that I'm most likely to treat as a God? Think about this in your life. What is the one good gift in my life that I'm most likely to make a God? What am I most likely to fear losing? Or ask a friend, ask a family member, what do you see in my life that I'm most vulnerable to turn from a good gift into a terrible God? Because a lot of times we don't like the feedback that we get on a question like that, but it will force us to look in our heart and to begin to follow the Lord in a way that we never have before. I want to pray for us as we get ready to wrap up. We're going to sing a beautiful song, Jesus Paid It All. This is a time if you need to come forward for prayer, we'd love to be able to pray for it. If you just need to stand or sit and reflect right where you are on what it means to count him as ultimately worthy, we want you to use this time for that as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have rescued us from the futile ways of life that we live in a world where people constantly look for ways to be made right with you, constantly look for ways to escape brokenness, sometimes through drugs or alcohol, sometimes through relationships, sometimes through trying to stay busy at work, sometimes through just deep, dark depression, just trying to figure out how to make their way in life. God, in the midst of that, you are good and you are powerful. And even when those hard times continue, God, you are able to rescue, you are able to redeem. You have made us right with you through Jesus. So God, help us to put our faith and hope completely in him, that he is Lord over every part of our life. And then God, set us free to live for you, to be able to distinguish between good gifts and who you are as the worthy one. God, I pray that we wouldn't live under the pressure of you being number one, but God, we would remember that you are the one, the one who is worthy of all worship and all praise. And we give this time to you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.